0: Guys, there we go. There's the mic. Good morning. Good to see you today. Thanks for coming. Uh, We have baptisms today, and we have people doing the membership leap today, and uh, uh, good stuff is going to be happening at the back end of this service. To those of you who have come from that, uh, maybe family member or friends, just a big special welcome to you. I'm glad you could just be a part of this today and, uh, and see a little bit about what we're about here at Fellowship of Faith. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave Gadini. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, what we've been doing here at FOF for the last school year is looking at this question, why? You know, the why questions that people ask. that, that, That question that's older than time, I swear, that seems foundational to everyone at some point in their life. Why is it like this? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me, why doesn't God, or why God, why? We know the why questions, right? Last fall, we began this by looking at a very specific why question why Jesus died. Because the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus' death on a cross, stands as the centerpiece to everything Christianity and in this church in particular. Is about. And what we did last fall is we began looking at the the, the historical reasons. What was actually going on in that place, in that day, and that time that landed Jesus there? What we've been doing these last couple of weeks is resurrecting that question. And looking not so much at the historic reasons why but looking at God's motivations in sending Jesus to die. Because the New Testament is clear from beginning to end that when Jesus died, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a fluke. It wasn't just that his best laid plans somehow went awry. That somehow and in some way, his death was central to his identity, to his mission, to his purpose, and to God's design for everything, for each of us, and for this globe And so what we've been doing is pulling back the veil of history and looking behind the history to what the scriptures say God was up to. In these last couple of weeks, we've been looking at God's motivations. But today, we're starting on a slightly different trajectory. We're looking not so much at God's motivations, but we're looking at, well, to kind of put it bluntly, what did it actually do? What did it actually do? accomplish. Now for any of you here who have had any kind of interface with Christianity or a church probably know that the knee-jerk reaction to that question, why did Jesus die, what did it do, what did it accomplish, is this, forgiveness of sins, right? Jesus died so my sins can be forgiven. And man, is that true. But my suspicion is that when I say forgiveness of sins, many of you here have a very limited idea of what that means compared to this broader picture the Bible brings in describing what forgiveness of sins is all about. Let me explain. When I say forgiveness of sins, what you probably think is this, right? There is some kind of offense that I've committed. I've done something wrong. Or there's something I should have done that I kind of left undone. Either way, I've kind of found myself in the wrong, right? And God is mad. And so forgiveness means that God, well, lets it go because isn't that how we forgive someone gets in the wrong with us someone hurts us or stands us up or does something mean or is just kind of careless that kind of bothers us inside and we have that choice right are we going to kind of hold on be angry bitter hold it over their head kind of give them, give it back to them in one way or another depending on your personality type will determine that way right Or do we let it go? Do we forgive? And so when we think of the forgiveness of sins with God, I think a lot of us think of it the same way. We did something to tick God off. We did something wrong. We did something bad. And God has this choice whether to be bitter and angry and kind of pour it on us or to let it go and forgive now some of you here might be slightly more nuanced with it. Some of you, when I talk about God getting mad, when I describe God in those kinds of ways, it doesn't really set well in your soul. So you kind of you cop out on that and, and you do it a different way, right? Well, it's not so much that God gets mad, but God is just. God is a judge, And as a judge, he has to be impartial, he has to be fair, he has to carry out what is right and wrong. And if our wrongs demand some kind of penalty, God in his justice has to let it carry forth. He has to meet out the justice. But forgiveness then becomes about some kind of way of God circumventing the justice system. Are you with me on this? Right? So that he doesn't have to carry out the justice on us. But either way you go about it. What forgiveness of sins translates to in most people's minds is God having to be appeased in one way or another and letting our offense go. I want to suggest to you today that when the New Testament talks about the forgiveness of sins, more often it talks about it in a different way. That when it uses this forgiveness language, it means something different instead. Because when the New Testament talks about forgiveness, what it sees is everyone in a grip. Now, I want you to do something with me today. I want you to take your fist, right? Take your hand. And I want you to make it a fist. And I want you to squeeze. I want you to grip and I want you to start gripping so hard that it kind of forces your arm to shake a little bit. If you draw blood in your palm, today is a good day, right? Right? You are doing it correctly, grip. That each of us is in the grip, in the power and strength of something called sin. Okay, you got that, right? There's this game that I love to play with people that are smaller than me. It's a great game to play with your kids, by the way. And there's several variations on this. But one of my favorite is this. Take your fingers and interlace them with someone particularly smaller than you. Now, this is going to be hard to do on your own. And then what you do, dads, you know, you squeeze, right? So what I'd like you to do here today, dads, or, or men in general, find someone sitting next to you who is smaller and weaker than yourself, right? Right? And what I want you to do, you don't have to know them. It's okay. A random stranger is fine for this exercise. I want you to interlace your fingers, and I want you to squeeze. I want you to grip, right? And I want you to just kind of dig that sucker in. Ah, it feels good, doesn't it? It doesn't it? Oh, yeah. For every sadist dad in the room, you know the joy of games, like these. But what I want you to do is imagine that the gripper, right, is sin. That there is this power called sin. And sometimes the New Testament will talk about the power of sin. Sometimes the New Testament will talk about the powers that stand behind and do sin. But either way, there is a power that has each of us in its grip. And those of you who have ever played hands like this, like lace the fingers or curl the nails or or squeeze the hand, right? You know, any of the fun games that we've devised, you know that there's no getting out for that other person. Better put, those of you who have grown up Being the victim of such games to your older brothers and cousins and uncles and fathers and friends. Know that when they have you in their grip, you are completely at their mercy. There is no hope. You can fight back. You're not strong enough. You can try to escape it's fundamentally not going to work and probably just antagonize them to grip more strongly. Forgive me if I'm giving a window into my childhood here today. But you who have experienced the grip know that you are completely at the mercy, hoping, pleading, that if you scream uncle loud enough, If you beg and plead loud enough, they might just release their grip. Now, when the game is played with someone who loves you, it's a game. But what about when the person who has you in their grip hates you, finds delight in humiliating you, finds joy in actually causing you real pain? What happens when the person who has you in their grip is not disposed towards you, but is someone who is vicious and cruel and mean and actually finds pleasure in your pain? What do you do then When you're in the grip, the only hope is that someone stronger comes to your rescue. And this is today how I want you to think about the forgiveness of sins that there is a power that has you in its grip. And delights in your misery, destruction, and pain. Now the defining way that the Gospels, those four biographies of Jesus that start the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The defining way the Gospels describe what Jesus did on the cross. Is in light of a great epic narrative embedded in the Old Testament called the Passover or the Exodus. All four Gospels take incredible pains to intentionally show that Jesus was crucified on the Passover. That Jesus was interpreting what he was going to do in light of the Passover. That Jesus, in even sharing that Passover meal with his disciples, was identifying as, as an integral piece of what that Passover story was about. Now, for you who are unfamiliar here today with what I'm talking about, the Exodus of which this thing called the Passover is a part is, I mean, it is like the story. Of the Old Testament. It is the defining story upon which the Old Testament finds its trajectory and arguably the New Testament as well. And it's the story of this God coming to the rescue of his people Israel, who are in the grip of a greater power, arguably the greatest power, known as Egypt and Egypt's gods that his people are suffering in the grip of this power called Egypt and the exodus which climaxes in the Passover is the story of God coming to their rescue or maybe I can use the word salvation, their deliverance or their aid. For those of you who don't know the story, I want to encourage you, read it for yourself. I mean, seriously, it reads like a novel. Some of you here are like, oh man, the Bible, like genealogy fest. No, you're not going to get any of that here. The story of the Exodus, you can find it in a book well aptly named Exodus. Exodus chapters 1 to 15. It reads like a novel. We'll give you the picture and story which I'm talking about. You can do it in under 20 minutes. I really want to encourage you, find some time today to read that story for yourself. Because what it is, is the story of a God who comes to the rescue of others in his, in, comes to the rescue of his people who are in the power's grip. Now I was reading a book um, not too long ago by, by a man that I can only describe as a, really a hero of the faith of mine. I won't get into the reasons why, but his name is N.T. Wright, and he's a New Testament scholar who writes on the Bible and all kinds of of, of New Testament and, 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 and theological ideas. And he recently wrote a book about the death of Jesus and what it accomplished. And here's the title of it. Check it out. Here's how he defines it. The Day the Revolution Began. Now, when you think about the death of Jesus, is that like the first phrase that would come to mind for you? The day the revolution began? When you think about the death of Jesus, does your mind immediately go to the idea that Jesus on the cross was beginning a revolution and that to be a Jesus follower is to join in a revolution as well but see this is how the new testament will picture it jesus coming to enact a revolution on the powers of darkness that hold you and this world in their grip and if you read the gospels you will see this play out from the very beginning Right? What do you see Jesus doing? He's coming into this world that's, that's in the grip of things like blindness and deafness. It's in the grip of those who are, who are crippled, who are handicapped. It is in the grip of disease. And what is he doing? He's giving sight to the blind. He's, he's letting the deaf hear. He's, he's letting the lame walk. He's healing diseases. He comes to this world that is in the grip of the forces around it. Famine and plague and, storm. and you see him feeding the thousands with nothing but a little morsel of bread. You see him standing on the, on, 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 on the stern of a ship, calling out to the wind and the waves to be still, and they obey him. You see Jesus coming into this world that is in the grip of death. The one great enemy, no one. No one has ever yet defeated. And you see him bringing the dead back from the grave. See, for the New Testament mind, it's a war going on. A war between the powers of darkness and a war between them with God. And Jesus is coming into the midst of it as an assault. Enacting a revolution against the powers that have this world. Enslaved. It comes to a head, I think, most explicitly as Jesus comes face-to-face again and again with those who are, who are demon-possessed, particularly held in the grip of, of, of powers of darkness that stand behind the powers of this world. And time and again, he beats them, he defeats them, he casts them out, he sends them to the abyss. He takes over their turf. He breaks the fingers of the devil who holds people in his grip. And through the Gospels, this builds further and further so that by the time you reach the cross, the New Testament writers are inviting us not to see defeat, not to see something that went, oh man, we didn't see that one coming, that went bad. No, what they're inviting us to see is the ultimate victory of the revolutionary. The ultimate victory of all. As Mark's gospel will even put it, that when you see Jesus on his cross, you see him reigning from his throne over all the powers of darkness, breaking their grip. Once and for all. Now, of course, anyone who would have actually, like, seen this in its day would think I was, like, absolutely nuts for, like, even suggesting this. Because how is a broken, battered, tortured man victory? I mean, here's Jesus. Jesus. He's pinned up, strung up, nailed up, unable to move, suffering at the hands of his tormentors, at the mercy of any power that chose to do with him anything they wished, and nailed there, unable to do anything about it. Victory? Yeah, I'll tell you whose victory it looks like. Rome's victory. The power of darkness, its victory. The defeat of the once great king. But see, Jesus was clear throughout his ministry, knowing his disciples wouldn't know what this means. And the New Testament writers are clear after that where we see defeat, God spelled victory. That the conquered one in that moment was the conqueror. That the victim was the victor. That the powers of darkness on that cross were having their grip broken forever and that's why every time you read the new testament and it starts talking about the cross it almost has like this weird gleeful joy and i don't mean like the sadistic gleeful joy of a dad doing the grip to his kid no i mean like this gleeful joy that this is not about defeat but this is about victory let me show you some words here today words taken right from the new testament ways that different new testament writers describe what jesus death is all about Victory, conquerors, triumphal procession, overcoming. I love how Paul puts it when he's reflecting on the cross. He gives us victory, he writes. God gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how the letter to the Romans puts it in reflecting on all that the powers can throw your way? What shall we say, he writes, shall trouble or hardship or persecution, shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword or anything else you can conjure in your mind that the dark powers use? Shall any of these separate us from the love of God? No, he cries. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Because on the cross, the grip has been broken forever. Other writers will even go on to describe what it means to be one who suffers for Christ. One who is led in triumphal procession behind Jesus. Triumphal procession. Showing off and bragging about the spoils of war earned. From a cross. I think of that last book of the New Testament called Revelation. It's a letter or seven letters, actually, to seven churches in just in the thick of the grip of the powers. And every time it gives this promise to Him who overcomes, this promise of victory. Assured in him. Paul, on one occasion, will write it this way. He'll say, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Does it look that way? Does it look that way? To anyone standing there, it looks like they made a spectacle of him, triumphing over him by the cross. That's not what Paul has to say. It's like he's saying when Jesus was hanging there, suffering the worst, arguably the worst that the dark powers can throw at a human being, the worst suffering The worst fate, the worst degradation, the worst exploitation, the worst enslavement and humiliation that humanity, I think, has ever devised. Paul's saying it's like Jesus is there, feeling the brunt in suffering it all, going, is this all you've got? Is this the worst you can do? Oh, dark powers, you ain't got nothing on me. Or as Master Kenobi once said, <laughs> strike me down, Darth, and I shall become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And what the New Testament proclaims about Jesus' death is this is not defeat but victory for a world and every person caught in the grip. Which means for every conversion, for every baptism, for every act of repentance on your part, every, let me translate, turning to him, The dark powers of this world have no choice but to loosen their grip on you, to retract their claws from your soul, because their power has been broken in Him. In Jesus, you can look at the powers of this world and say, Do your worst. Because your hand is broken. You no longer lay claim to me. In your grip. And that's why Jesus died. Viva Revolution.